All right, let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. We're in Hebrews chapter 8 and reading through the entire chapter, uh, 1 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Let me go ahead and read this for us. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and dive into God's word for us this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would feed us your word now as we open our mouths wide, open our hearts to receive your word, wanting that this word would bear fruit, wanting this would not simply a mental exercise, but truly wanting it to bear fruit in our lives, that it would change us, it would move us in the right direction, it will lead us towards you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, and we've been inching our way through the book, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we're now past the halfway mark, and the passage we're landing on today is a really big one. Uh, it essentially sums up the the bigger point made in this entire letter, and in a sense, it even sums up um, the entire Bible. Uh, and so that's what I mean by this is a big deal, this is a big chapter. It tells you how all the narratives in the Old Testament and the New are joined together in one big redemptive story. Um, I don't know if you remember watching the first Avengers movie, like the first time you watched it, uh, and how you felt, you know, when you, when you saw Iron Man and Captain America, my favorite, and Thor, 
and Black Widow all coming together to save the world, right? The moment when all those separate movies become one. Um, Hebrews 8, in a sense, is the moment when you're walking into the, the biblical theater and watching this biblical version of the Avengers for the very first time. I mean, this really, really hits this climactic point in chapter 11, uh, when he just starts going off of these heroes of our faith. Um, but chapter 8 is where we get sort of the opening sequence. Okay. This is where we're introduced to this big idea, or as I titled it, the, the big point of it all. Okay. And it starts from verse 1, where the author says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Okay. Now, first of all, who's we? Uh, we there is, is the author of Hebrews referring to his apostolic authority, which he shares with other apostles. Okay. And based on that authority, the author is proceeding to state the point as this is what we're saying, the apostles of Christ are saying, and he expounds the point. He states the point, and then he explains the point. And I'm basically following that outline and making two points today. First, we'll look at what the point is. What is the point in verse 1? What is the point? And then, secondly, we'll look at what difference this point makes. Okay? What is the point? What difference does it make? So let's go to the first point about the point. What is the point? Verse 1. Take a look. He states it very simply, and yet he packs so much into it. He says, now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Okay, big words, big ideas. Let's parse this. Now, for the Jewish audience who's receiving this letter, the first half of this verse and the second half are two pictures that didn't really go together. Because on the one hand, you have a person who is a high priest, and that, in their minds, is a person who works at the, the temple down the street in Jerusalem. Um, and, and he's the guy who mediates on your behalf to enter the Holy of Holies once a year and offer sacrifices at the temple for you, all that, all that good stuff. That's the high priest. But that's not what the author is talking about here. Not when he says this priest is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. The lengthy description is meant to distinguish whoever this high priest is from the earthly high priest. This is someone different. The high priest this author is talking about cannot be that guy down the street in Jerusalem who gets replaced every few years. This high priest is the one literally sitting at the right hand of the throne of God forever, permanently. And, and, and not only that, we, we have to focus on this, this word seated that's an interesting word because high priests, earthly high priests, they didn't sit. You don't sit down and chill in the Holy of Holies. <laughs> What's up, God? How you been? This is my day. The high priest would go in, offer sacrifices, come back out, repeat. They never sat down. Why? Their work was never finished. The sacrifices never stopped. The work of the priests never came to an end. But see, this high priest in heaven is seated. He's seated next to the majesty of heaven. What does that mean? What is the significance of that? It means this. His work is done. 
His work is finished. The sacrifice of this high priest is once and for all not to be repeated. And so, in a sense, he sits and he rests. Okay? Kind of like the picture in Genesis 1, when God created everything, he saw that it was good and everything was good. And because everything was good, he rested. Uh, since I mentioned Avengers, remember that post credit scene in the first Avengers movie? Okay. What are they doing gathered around the table in the end, in that pretty much demolished restaurant? They're eating shawarma, right? Remember that? I've never had it myself, uh, but that scene was such an enjoyable scene for me um, because, I mean, when was the last time you saw a bunch of superheroes sitting around a table doing nothing but eating, right? It's like, it's like a superhero mukbang, right? <laughs> they're just eating and doing nothing else. They're not talking. They're not strategizing. They're not eating to get back out to, to fight another battle. They're just sitting there eating. Why? They just won a major battle. The enemy's defeated, right? So they're just seated and eating shawarma. See, when, when Jesus died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, he finished all the work required for our salvation. He didn't just win a battle. He actually won the war. He won the, the infinity war, so to speak, for our souls, okay? That's the last Marvel reference for today, I promise you. <laughs> Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It's absolutely finished, meaning the work that's required to secure the salvation of God's people is done. There's nothing more to be done. That's why what happened in the temple happened. The curtain was torn in two. There's no more need for earthly high priests to bring sacrifices into the Holy of Holies. It's done. That's no longer to be repeated. Jesus, the better high priest, has taken his people now all the way into the presence of God. And that's the point. Jesus finished it all. He won the war and he sits at the right hand of God. That's the point. And the flip side of this is, okay, what cannot be, therefore, the point. The point cannot be for you now to go out there, live a life of earning your way into God's presence. That can't be the point. You can't, you can't think, possibly, if this is true, if what Jesus has done is true, that your job now is to Earn your way, worship your way, sacrifice your way, or baptize your way into the presence of God. It's not up to you. Jesus did that. He died. He rose. He tore the curtain in two. He finished it. He didn't pass the baton to you. He finished it for you. Therefore, the point can't be, now let's return like these Jewish Christians were tempted to do. Let's return to the old ways, the old covenant, the old promise, the old priesthood, and the old temple worship. None of those things brought anyone into the actual presence of God. It brought one person into the presence of God's Shekinah glory. But even that wasn't a face-to-face -face meeting with God. It wasn't into the literal dwelling place of God. And that work was never finished. Therefore, the priests had to repeatedly offer these sacrifices, repeatedly be replaced. And that 
that repetition, being content with that, that's missing the point. That's missing the point. The point is not to repeatedly draw near to something that represents the glory of God or represents the presence of God through a human high priest, but for you to be literally, literally in the presence of God and to dwell with him face to face. That's the point, and that's what Jesus offers you. It says in verse 2, this high priest, Christ, is a minister in the holy places. And again, this would have sounded like to the Jewish audience, the holy of holies in the physical temple. Okay, But then look what it says. The true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He makes a distinction here between the temple built by the hands of man and the true tent that the Lord has set up. There's a distinction. And Jesus, our great high priest, takes us not into the physical temple made by human hands, but to the true tent made by God. What does it mean by true tent? It's the literal house of God, the very dwelling place of God where God is forever. Not the one created by man where God could be there and could not be there depending on how we are doing, but the one created by God, set up by God where he is living in, his very own chambers. To be there, that's the point of it all. That's always been the point. When God covenanted with his people, made a promise with his people, he said, I will be your God, you'll be my people, and I will make my dwelling with you forever. That's why it also says in John chapter 114, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The word dwelt there is the Greek word for pitching a tent, setting up residence, okay, moving in. The reason why Jesus came into the world is not, okay, and this is going to make me sound like a heretic for a second, but just hear me. The reason why Jesus came into the world is not ultimately to die for your sins. The reason Jesus came into the world is that by dying for your sins, he will bring you into his house and live with you. That's the ultimate point, to marry you and move in with you. That's the point. Jesus is the high priest who takes us all the way into the literal presence of God, the literal dwelling place of God, something no Levite could ever do, no amount of animal sacrifices could ever achieve. Jesus, his finished work, only he can do that for us. That's the point. That's the point. That's the point of the entire Bible. Through Christ our high priest and his mediating for us, we get to be face to face with God forever. That's the point. Okay. What difference does this point, or should this point make? What difference should this make? And this is important because this is how you know you get the point. It's if this difference exists in your life. That's how you know you truly got the point. And the simplest way to put it is this. If and when you get this point, one thing that most certainly happens is that Jesus becomes enough. 
he's enough. In your heart of hearts, you are sure that he is truly all that you need. That's the difference. Here's how the author takes us to this conclusion. First, he contrasts Jesus' priesthood, his sacrifice on the cross, with the old priesthood and the animal sacrifices in the physical temple, which, again, the Jewish Christians were now being drawn back to, as if you know, Jesus and this gospel thing doesn't seem quite enough. It's good, but not good enough to stand alone. Now, I want to make something very clear from the get-go, that when I say he contrasts, I don't mean, I don't mean that the two contradict. They contrast, but they don't contradict. Uh, the priesthood in the Old Covenant was from God. God established that, and he also established the new. So the two cannot be contradicting one another. But as I said earlier, they're telling this one big story, making one big point, okay? How? Here's how. By the old covenant pointing to the new and proving the new to be superior to the old. Okay? The old covenant pointing to the new, proving the new to be superior to the old. To the point of making the old obsolete. That's what the author uses, the word obsolete in verse 13. It means literally being worn out or deteriorating. That's what this word obsolete means. And this is the difference that this point must make for you and me. When you compare it to Jesus, everything must appear as though they're obsolete. When compared to Jesus, everything must appear as though they're just wearing out, deteriorating. And and I do want you to understand that this really was a very radical thing to say to the original audience. To say to the Israelites that their temple worship, the Levitical priesthood, are now obsolete That is a radical statement. But doesn't that remind you of something? If you recall the manner in which Jesus describes his discipleship, what it means to follow him, it's just as radical, isn't it? Following Jesus is a radical decision to leave everything that you once knew behind to deny yourself, to come out of that place of comfort and familiarity and to now serve Jesus as your Lord, your master, and your king. You become his subject under his reign, no longer you ruling over your own life. That's radical. And what would make someone do that? What, what can create this change? What would make someone choose this narrow path, deny themselves and follow Jesus, leaving everything behind? There's only one answer to that. It's if you've come to see Jesus, your high priest, as the ultimate prize and the greatest treasure in your life. If he is, as he says, the pearl of great prize, worth trading everything for. And if this, if this difference has occurred in your heart, that means you, you really get the first point, the, the, the big point of the entire Bible. That's how you know you get it. Those who look to Jesus as their great high priest in the heavenly place are those who have experienced this radical change, not primarily in their behavior, but in their desires in their value system, 
in their hierarchy of values. It's not that the world and the, and the life here and now don't matter anymore, but they don't matter as much as Jesus. They don't even come close. That's the difference. Jesus becomes all-sufficient for you as your great high priest in heaven. And when you look to him, you see your only way into the true tent of God. And that makes Jesus worthy of your worship, worthy of your obedience, worthy of your affections. This heart change occurs. There's a difference in your heart when you get this point. And that's, that's what this means when it says in verse 10, where God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. What does he mean? He doesn't say, I'm going to write the law on their hands and their feet. I'm going to write them on their hearts. I'm going to create a heart change. The new covenant, what the new covenant ushers in is not so much greater quantity of obedience with our hands and feet. No, it's a greater amount of desire for the Lord. It's a heart change. What you will experience is not mere behavior conformity to the law, but a heart conformity, meaning you will come to desire God and the law which speaks his love language. You want to please him and therefore you obey the law. You want to please the one who loves you and therefore you study his commands. Therefore you live holy as he is holy. Why? Because you love him. Why do you love him? Because he first loved you. And when my kids leave me with something little, like, like a little drawing or a little piece of Lego they made or something made out of clay, when they bring that to me, and they always bring it to me, they always make, make sure they bring it to me, the question they bring with them is not, since I did this, will you love me? That's never the question. Their question is always, Abba, do you like it? Do you like what I made? Are you pleased by what I made? My pleasure is the aim, not my acceptance of them. They're already accepted. That's why they're trying to please me. We're already a family. That's why they're trying to seek, see, they're seeking to please their father. And that's the only proper way we can approach the law of God. Not to obey and therefore be accepted, but because you've been accepted through Christ, your high priest, you want to please the one who has loved you so freely. Here's another way the author pushes this point. Uh, starting in verse 4, he says, There are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. A copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Then in verse 6, but, okay, here's a contrast. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. They don't contradict each other. One's just better than the other. One's just infinitely better than the other. And this passage is one of those very helpful passages that help you understand, therefore, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New. What is the Old Testament about? It's about copies and shadows of the heavenly things. In other words, it's, a, it's an imitation of the authentic thing that is to come. 
The Old Testament is about the imitation that's meant to make you more excited for the authentic thing that's coming in Christ. You know, I personally really sense this, con- this kind of contrast the most between the imitation and the authentic. Whenever I tried out a new um, Hong Kong restaurant, um, especially in, in our beloved city of Atlanta, I, I, I love our city, I love the ATL, but in all seriousness, uh, we need better Hong Kong restaurants up in here. Uh, because most of you know I grew up in Hong Kong, and uh, so far my experiences at Hong Kong restaurants in Atlanta have only been, oh, it's close, but not quite the real thing. It's close, but it's not quite the real thing. And the, the more I eat at these, and I've tried about seven or eight places now, the more I try different places, the more it makes me want to get on an airplane and fly 8,000 miles west towards Hong Kong. <laughs> just for a, uh, just a glass of authentic Hong Kong milk tea or siu mai and cheng fun and, you know, the rest. The imitation, the copies only whet my appetite for the real thing. That's the point of the Old Testament, to make you desire more the real thing. And the author of Hebrews is saying, stop going back to the imitation sacrifice, to the imitation priest, to the imitation altar at the imitation temple, all which were provided temporarily as copies and shadows of the real thing, the real thing that you get from Jesus. Don't go back to that. Don't go back to the old. Not when the real thing, (laughs) when the real thing has traveled 8,000 miles, metaphorically speaking, to come to you. It's here. The word became flesh. He traveled from heaven to earth and dwelt among us. Why would you not turn to him? Why would you not turn to his once and for all sacrifice, his eternal priesthood, his gift and promise of the literal presence of God? Why would you go back to the old copies and shadows of the real thing? And, okay, along with that, why would you go back to that old mindset? The old mindset where your right to draw near to God, your right to be fully known and fully accepted by God depends on your sacrifice, your strength, your performance, your track record, and your human high priest who is fallible. Why would you go back to that mindset where you put yourself on this religious hamster wheel that takes you nowhere? Why would you live as though the destiny of your life hangs on your tight control and reign over everything, as if your destiny hinges on your GPA, your resume, your promotion, your academic degrees, your physical health and appearance? That's the old covenant mindset of justifying your existence, winning approval, winning love, with your work, with your repeated, repeated sacrifices that never, ever end. Why would you live with that mindset? Why would you live in that broken system 
that flawed system that can't give you what it seems to be promising you. And that was the flaw with the old covenant as well. It says in verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Okay, what does that imply? To say, if the first covenant had been faultless, what does that imply? Just a little exercise in logic here. It implies the first covenant was not faultless. It was faulty. And by faulty, it doesn't mean that the old covenant was somehow sinful. It means two things. One, the old covenant itself wasn't enough to bring God's people all the way to God. Because the blood of bulls and goats, they don't actually take away sin. That this kind of mysticism and superstition has no place in the Bible. Second, a covenant or a promise that is faulty is one that can be broken. And boy, was the old covenant broken. Time and time again. By whom? By the people of God. By Israel. By us. When you have a promise that hinges on fallen human beings, it's a faulty promise. It's a fallible promise. So given this faulty nature of the old covenant and the repeated breaking of that covenant by God's people, what does God do? What does, what does he do with his people who essentially cheated on him time and time again by worshiping something else other than him, glorifying other things other, other than the true maker and creator? Here's what he did. He establishes a new covenant. He doubles down on his marital vows. And this time, it's a better covenant because this time he's hanging everything on himself. If it takes me laying my life down to keep this marriage together, I will. If it takes me being torn in two, I will be torn in two. He is going all the way to say, I'm going to bind my people to myself like a fetter Bind my wandering people to me. In one of my favorite sonnets of all time by John Donne, he, he puts it like this in, in the form of a prayer. He says, I am betrothed unto your, that's God's enemy. I'm, be, I'm engaged to be married to your enemy. I, I'm in love with your enemy, God. That's what he's saying. So, divorce me. Untie or break that knot again. Take me to you. Imprison me, for I except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste except you ravish me. I wonder if you can see the difference the gospel has made in this in this poet's heart. This is a heart that's still struggling, right? Struggling still to trust entirely in Christ alone. And yet, because at the deepest level, he still sees the ultimate value of Christ and still treasures him deep down inside, he leans on him, he leans on the power of God to hold fast to him, even when he doesn't have the power to hold fast to God. He says, I don't, I don't have the strength to divorce your enemy. Would you help me? Would you divorce us by your power and your strength and imprison me? Do you do whatever you need to do to drag me to where you are because I'm helpless on my own? That's his prayer. And that could be many of your prayers. 
Maybe you don't see this difference in your heart. You don't treasure Christ as the greatest object of desire in your life. But do you desire to have that desire? Will you cling to the help of God to give you that desire, which you don't have but you would like to have? Do you want this new covenant to be yours? Do you want to enter into this forever marital vow God has made with his people? Do you want this difference? Do you want this difference in your life? You know, I don't know about you, but it's, it's pretty easy these days, I think, for, for me to feel discouragement. Okay? When, when I have a bad day you know, where I feel like I'm, I'm not getting enough done, or uh, things are just a mess. It's disorganized. I'm, I'm losing my temper a bit sooner. I'm, I'm becoming more easily irritated. I'm gr- grumbling about little things. I see all of this in myself. I wonder if you see that in yourself these days. If you do, you know what that makes us? The first thing that makes us is human. Okay? That makes us human. Negative emotions are normal human experience in a world that's corrupted by sin. You're you're just reacting to the world. Your immune system is functioning, right? That's what negative emotions tell you. It's, in a sense, normal. But that, there's still a problem, though, right? Saying it's human doesn't make it okay. We're still trapped in this mess. We're still restless. We feel homeless even when we're home. Nothing seems to be the way it's supposed to be. And that's where Christ comes in and gives us something more than normal, more than human, more than the status quo. He shows us that he is seated at the right hand of God. And he says to us, I have a place prepared for you here. And Paul says, your true identity, your true life, your true home is hidden there. And that means when I'm feeling discouraged by things happening around me or perhaps my relationships or just my my internal feelings or thoughts, I can still be reassured by this fact that I feel this way about this place because this place is not home. I'm supposed to feel this way because this place is not home. Christ is my home and he has prepared a place for me. And so even though we're not immune to to negative feelings and negative emotions, we don't have to be passive about them either. We take them to our great high priest and we let him speak his truth into our feelings. We let him speak his truth and we rehearse them. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Talk to your soul. Command your soul to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing, keep singing like never before. Keep worshiping his holy name. This is how we strive towards this difference. When you don't see enough of the difference, you can strive towards that difference by faith. And this is really why the author's you know, chosen this passage in the second half from the prophet Jeremiah. In a way, he understands. I mean, the, the Jewish audience, they might take the Old Testament prophet a bit more seriously, maybe than his own words. So he quotes the prophet Jeremiah, as if, as if to say, okay, if you don't want to take my word for it, then take the prophet that you revere, Jeremiah, take his words for it. And he quotes extensively from chapter 31 in Jeremiah. And his point from verse 8 and on 
is essentially that God says, he has said that he will establish this new covenant for Israel. Meaning what? This is for you. He, twice he says, this is for Israel. As if to say, are you sure you're ready to give up on this? This is what God is offering you, not man. Are you resting in this? Are you, are you receiving this? Are you striving towards this? Or are you tempted to turn to something else? God has established a new covenant with you. Israel, don't look to anything else, especially the things that are obsolete and vanishing away. And now applying this to us, you have to understand, as we as Gentiles, that's us, we also have the obligation to receive this and hold fast to this because, as it says in Romans 4.16, if we carry the faith of Abraham, then Abraham is our father, father of our faith. We become offspring of Abraham, children of the promise. You believing in Jesus makes your child offspring of Abraham, belonging to this everlasting covenant. That's why in, in John 8.56, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad because through Jesus, the promise becomes true that he will be a father of many nations, not just one nation, many nations. Through Jesus, this promise comes true. This is how, the, the, again, the Old Testament and the New are connected. The promise to Abraham was only partially fulfilled in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel. But in the New Covenant, what we have is the promise given to Abraham now fully, fully realized through Jesus Christ, who draws all the nations to himself and grafts them into true spiritual people of God, true spiritual Israel. And that's why it says in Romans 9, you're not Israel just because you're ethnically Israel. You're Israel if you belong to the promise, if you belong to this new covenant established by God. That's what makes you offspring, if you belong to the promise, not to a biological ancestry. This is very much for you and me today. Hebrews 8 is for you and me today. We have been given this new covenant promise, and we shouldn't take it for granted. Demands our faith and our trust. And if you're struggling to believe this, again, uh, if you're struggling to believe in God this way, when he says, I will, I will establish new covenant. I will write my law in their hearts. If you struggle to believe that, then pray and ask him for faith. Ask him for faith. Say to him, God, I can't even say I will believe. I need you to say to me, I will give you faith. I need more of your I will than my I will. So help me. Okay. Have you noticed how, how often God says I will in this passage? I mean, that's an invitation for you to lean on his I will statements more than your I will statements. Rest in his promise and go to him. Go to him. Trusting in his words, go to him. Don't trust in how well you're doing at trusting in him. Trust in his words and go to him. Whatever you do, and I'll close with this, whatever you do, don't do nothing. Don't be what the Bible calls a sluggard. Don't be slothful. Whatever you do, don't do nothing. Just run. Just run. 
I remember back in freshman year in high school, I was running track. I, sh I really should have stayed. I really, but I just couldn't. I just didn't like running at all. But anyway, w during this one particular race, one meet, uh, we're running the, the one mile and and I'm just down to my last breath. I'm dead. And I see the other guy ahead of me, and he's about to win. I, I'm pretty sure he's about to win, and I've given up. I had nothing left. I had nothing left. My coach, however, right, my coach, he comes alongside me, right along the, the, the side, sideline. And, and as I'm running, he runs beside me, and he says this. He says, John! And he points to the guy ahead of me. He says, go get him! Get him! And part of me was just surprised. It's like, that's the strategy? It's like, you're my coach, and that's just, it's just get him, right? It's not control your breathing, pace yourself, right? Lift your knees. None of that. Just, just run. <laughs> and I did. And I won. Sometimes you need to think less about how you're going to run, what your strategy is going to be, what your plan to success is going to be. You just need to run to finish the race. Go get it. Don't, whatever you do, don't stop running, right? I mean, you've, you've seen Finding Nemo, right? Even in that, within that secular worldview, where in the end, right, death ends all, even in that secular worldview, Dory has this inspirational message of just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. How much more should we keep running if life ultimately does have meaning? And we do have a high priest in the heavens preparing a place for us. How much more should you and I just keep running? Don't stop running. Don't give up. Keep running the race. Heaven is one lifetime away. Your eternity with God is just one lifetime away. So keep running. Run into the arms of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to you as your weak and little children who who don't really have a clue how to draw near to you. But we thank you for your revelation through your son that tells us he has done all the work. He has come down to make his dwelling with us, and he promises he will prepare a place for us. And if we simply look to him and trust in him and believe him to be who he says he is, he will run with us to the finish line. And when we fall, he will pick us up. When we wander away, he will bring us back. When we derail ourselves with our own sins, he by his grace and by the power of his spirit will bring us back on track. Help us to rest in this. And not only rest in it, help us to be strengthened by it so we would keep running our race, so we would not give up. We're so close. Life is so short. We're almost there. Help us get there. Help us to keep running to you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.